You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Can you guarantee those union members that the benefits under Medicare for All will be as good as the benefits that their representatives, their union reps, fought hard to negotiate? Well, two things. They will be better because Medicare for All is comprehensive. It covers all health care needs for senior citizens. It will finally include dental care, hearing aids, and eyeglasses. But you don't know Second that. of all. You don't know that, Second Bernie. of all. We'll come to you in a second, I do know, and I wrote the damn bill. And so you have probably the only semi-interesting moment uh, in the Bernie Sanders campaign, this uh, drop the microphone moment about I wrote the damn bill. Um, Still relevant two weeks later, uh, and we'll get to why Bernie has upped the ante uh, in some sort of a campaign reboot, and uh, and we'll get to that. But uh, before I fully develop the uh, Bernie Sanders angle, I want to come at uh, today's topic from a, from a little uh, different direction. Uh, you know I like to start the show often by sort of taking a, uh, a big headline in the news and trying to tie it uh, uh, somehow into healthcare. And this week, it's actually pretty easy if, if we talk about the, uh, the in-jail, in-prison suicide of accused pedophile and overall scumbag Jeffrey Epstein. Right, and you all have seen these headlines. You're familiar with it. Uh, that despite being in a high security facility, but despite being on suicide watch, at least at some point, uh, despite all sorts of claims that it's impossible to kill yourself in prison because you can't access the materials, uh, somehow uh, Jeffrey Epstein uh, succeeded in killing himself in the middle of a high security prison. And isn't this ironic? I mean, if, if you're the warden of this high security prison, if there's one guy one guy in the whole place that you needed to protect, that you needed to be sure he didn't hurt himself or kill himself, it's the one man that's getting all the media attention. And you've heard all the the details about this, and and stuff comes out every day, right? The video cameras were disabled. The ones that were supposed to be watching him constantly in his cell, or they were pointed away from the cell or moved or something. Uh, The roommate that he had, that he was supposed to have, uh, was moved hours before he was found dead. The suicide watch was taken off, even though there was no reason to do that. Uh, and most recent uh, story that I read uh, a few hours ago was that the guard logs, where they say, yeah, we checked on him at 1 a.m., we checked on him at 2 a.m. and 3 a.m., uh, those uh, logs were falsified. So they wrote down on the logs, they actually checked on him, he was okay. It turns out that he didn't. And uh, and so, you know, we have all sorts of incompetence and corruption going on here. Uh, and, of course, the conspiracy and hitman theories abound, right? If you are a conservative, you're convinced the Clintons did it, uh, you know, and that this all fits in with all the other folks who mysteriously died being associated with the Clintons, Vince Foster, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if you are liberal, you're convinced Trump did it, that, uh, that, that Jeffrey Epstein, when he was going to go to trial or cut a plea deal or something like that, was going to name names and that, of course, Trump was going to be one of those names. And so if you're liberal or you're Democrat, then you're convinced that actually Trump or somebody working on his behalf did it. But at least one thing we can all agree on, hopefully, is that there is definitely incompetence. 
as a part of this suicide. And there is corruption at some level, right? I mean, at the very least, the, you know, the guards lied about, you know, on paper, on a record, uh, you know, falsified documents saying that they did their job when they really didn't. And apparently they were asleep. Um, you know, if you uh, subscribe to a higher level of corruption, maybe he was killed or maybe he's not even dead. Right. I don't know if you heard that one, that the body taken out of the jail, maybe it wasn't Epstein's body. Maybe it was a lookalike. Maybe Epstein's been secreted away. Maybe he's back on his uh, private island hiding in a bunker somewhere. Right. If you really want to take the, the conspiracy theories uh, all the way out to their edge. But anyhow, at least as a floor. At least as a floor, I think we can agree. There's definitely incompetence, and there is definitely corruption at some level, at least at a, at a low level compared to the, to the sensational um, uh, theories about uh, you know, a Clinton hit man or a Trump hit man or, or something else. And so when you think about health care, right, what's this got to do with health care? Well, where have we seen this somewhere before? Where have we seen incompetence and corruption that led to the harm of people that you were supposed to protect? And the answer is pretty clear. It's, of course, the VA hospital system. Uh, where else have we seen falsifications of records, right? You know, you write down in a book or on a record-keeping system somewhere that you did something that you actually did not do. And that exists in the VA scandals as well, right? If you think those have gone away uh, under the Trump administration, maybe some of them have gotten a little bit better. But uh, they, they haven't gone away. There's still issues with whistleblowers getting abused, and there's still issues with <laughs> – Excuse me, um, uh, folks falsifying records like, uh, you know, this quality measure the VA has. I think that you need to get an appointment within two weeks, I think is the number. I'm not sure. Uh, two weeks of, of calling to request the appointment. So if there are no appointments available, they just falsify the records. And if you can't have an appointment until the 31st and it's the first of the month, they'll just say you got your appointment the 31st and you called on the 21st. Uh, and instead of the first. So, you know, there's all sorts of, you know, falsifying of records, very similar to what uh, went on in um, this uh, in the prison. And like the prisoners, veterans are prisoners of their own health care. Right. They have, you know, in most instances, no other place to go. And although, again, there's been some steps made under the Trump administration to try to give vets other options, those are not getting executed in the trenches. I don't know if you remember uh, a few months ago, Dr. Hal and I had uh, one of his residents on who has a much, obviously, much more recent experience at the VA uh, than either Dr. Hal or myself. But the, the long and short of that interview with this young lady is that nothing has changed. In the VA, and, and you know these folks kill themselves trying to get these veterans care, and have to operate in a system that offers them, you know, no support whatsoever. In many instances, they have to wait on the phone hours, six hours sometimes. On, uh, I remember her saying to get uh, veterans with cancer uh, care outside the system if they can't get it inside the system. And you know, in the trenches, these things die uh, a slow death from uh, from benign neglect, and. Like Jeffrey Epstein, these veterans commit suicide, right? The number is 22 veterans per day commit suicide. Now, I'm not suggesting all of them are related to VA care, but a large proportion of them are. And there's been, uh, you know, many veterans that have uh, killed themselves on VA campuses, right? We in This past April, we had two in the state of Georgia who killed themselves on a VA campus, and one, I think, August 6th, right, a few days ago, uh, what, eight days ago, nine days ago, um, in, in North Carolina who killed himself on, on the campus. And, you know, oftentimes they'll leave notes to the effect that they're killing themselves as sort of the last protest 
against the lack of care, uh, the lack of empathy, uh, you know, in, in a system that, that doesn't really work. And, and uh, even, uh, you know, Trump last March signed an executive order to create a task force to look into veteran suicide. So I see many uh, parallels between what's going on in the prison and, and, and how they fail to do their job. You know, how at the VA uh, we have a corrupt system that fails to do its job. And in both cases, you have prisoners of a system uh, who uh, have a suicide rate that is far beyond the general population, uh, uh, even though, you know, they're in a system that should be protecting them. Okay, so let's circle back. Now that we've sort of developed this example about the prisons and the VA, and let's circle back around to, to Bernie Sanders because he has upped the ante. Uh, a, an article in Politico uh, a couple of days ago uh, dis- described uh, you know some insider information from Bernie's campaign that they've done a reboot. Uh, they've gone back and looked at, number one, his lack of preparation for the first debate, and again by their own description, uh, a lack of preparation for the first debate, a lack of a message – and then the really neat moment that they had with this, uh, you know, drop the mic moment about I wrote the damn bill uh, and um, and said, OK, we're going to reboot the campaign. It's going to be all about Medicare for all. You know, strategically, they're saying we got one strong card. Everything else that we're talking about is just a, a rerun of 2016. It's not going to capture anyone's imagination. It's not going to separate us from the other Democratic candidates. So we're going to go all in for Medicare for all. So. With that in mind, I'm going to replay the clip for you uh, because I want to make a couple of points about this that, that, that I think get lost. And um, so I want you to listen very carefully to it again, and uh, and then we're going to kind of pick it apart a little. Here we go. Can you guarantee those union members that the benefits under Medicare for All will be as good as the benefits that their representatives, their union reps, fought hard to negotiate? Well, two things. They will be better because Medicare for All is comprehensive. It covers all health care needs for senior citizens. It will finally include dental care, hearing aids, and eyeglasses. But you don't know Second that. of all. You don't know that, Second Bernie. of all. We'll come I, to you in a second, I, I do know, and I wrote the damn bill. <laughs> okay. So so let's pick this apart very carefully because Bernie was very, very clever here. You know, Bernie's not dumb, uh, and he knows how to play a shell game when he's in a debate situation. You know, he's finely tuned his, you know, is health care a right uh, argument uh, and knows how to corner people with that. Uh, so, so he's a very smart guy. So let's look at what he did there. Uh, Tim Ryan, who was the presidential candidate who challenged – Bernie on Medicare for all. Tim's point was you don't know how Medicare for all compares with the union health plans that have been negotiated by these labor unions over decades. They're among the sweetest health care plans out there. And this debate took place in, you know, the cradle of union country. So it was a very relevant question. And so what Tim was saying was you don't understand how Medicare for all compares to these union-based sweetheart deal health plans. It's a valid point. It's a valid point. But Bernie turned it around and made it sound like Tim was accusing him of not knowing what was in Medicare for all. Tim was accusing him of not knowing how Medicare for all compared to another plan. It, to, to know how two things compare, you have to know your own plan and you have to know the union plan. It's unlikely that Bernie has 
every detail of every union plan in the country stored in his head for immediate access to sort of make that comparison. So Tim was right. Bernie doesn't know. But Bernie turned it around and said, well, I know it's in my own plan. I wrote the damn bill. So if you can't win the argument that you're presented with, create another argument and win that one. And he did that all in a couple of sentences. It was very clever. Uh, unfortunately, it, it, it leaves them a, a mistaken impression, uh, and it created a you know drop the microphone moment. And now, of course, you know the Sanders campaign is uh, you know selling bumper stickers with that, and you know God knows what else. You know when I went on uh, the internet to try to find that clip to record, I mean you know the Sanders campaign has you know jazzed that video up and is you know uh, doing what their what their job is, which is to you know sort of uh, you know capitalize on on that moment. So when Tim Ryan said you don't know that, the that he was referring to was the comparison, not the content of Medicare for all itself. However, the point I want to make at the beginning of the next segment is that this, this you know, I wrote the damn bill comment um, reveals some things about Bernie and about Medicare for all that are very, very scary, and we will get to those in segment two. Uh, you're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Dr. Karuchak, your host today. Thanks very much for being with us in the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Uh, In the first segment, we were getting pretty deep into uh, a couple of different issues. We started with uh, uh, Jeffrey Epstein's um, untimely uh, death uh, by apparent suicide in a high-security prison, and how could that possibly happen, relating that to, you know, when the government does anything, they're going to screw it up uh, with a combination of uh, incompetence and corruption. Uh, we then started another thread talking about Bernie Sanders and Medicare for All, and I think you can see where the relationship's going. And, and we've played the clip twice already. I'm not going to fill the whole show up by playing the same clip over and over again, but we replayed Bernie Sanders' drop-the-microphone moment from the second debate when he was challenging Tim Ryan, and he said, I wrote the damn bill, and we got a bunch of applause. And uh, And we've been sort of analyzing the guts of that. And the first thing that we said was uh, that um, – What's the first thing? We, oh, I know what it was. God, I'm losing my mind here. Uh, that 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 the, I wrote the damn bill. That moment was actually a very clever shell game uh, that that Bernie Sanders was playing, and that he was he substituted. Uh, Tim Ryan accused him of not understanding the relationship between Medicare for All and some of these really sweet deal union based labor union based health plans. That's a valid point, and I don't think Bernie Sanders knows that. But but Bernie Sanders turned it around and said, "You're wrong because I know what's in my bill. I wrote the damn bill." And of course, you get the applause, and now we have the T-shirts on the bumper stickers, and God knows what else from the Bernie Sanders campaign that has rebooted. Apparently, his campaign based only on he's going to be a one-issue candidate from now on. It's going to be Medicare for all because it's really the only, if you'll pardon the pun, Trump card that he's got to play. So let's get on to a couple of other points about this. I wrote the damn bill comment because I think it's very, very revealing of 
the arrogance of Bernie Sanders. And, and don't get me wrong. I like Bernie Sanders as a politician because at least he's honest. He says he's socialist. He says what he means. He means what he says. Uh, he makes no effort to, uh, you know, be somebody he's not. He's not like Hillary Clinton and a lot of the Democrat, uh, uh, politicians that, you know, go and, you know, imitate the accent of their audience or try to pretend they're somebody they're not or try to, you know, change colors to match their surroundings. Uh, they, you know, Bernie Sanders is who he is and it doesn't matter who he's talking to or where he's going. And, and for that, I, I do respect him at least a little bit. But I think we also have to, you know, call balls and strikes uh, how we see them. And I think we have a big problem here with with his ignorance uh, about unforeseen consequences and his arrogance regarding unforeseen consequences. Uh, what is telling about that dialogue between Ryan and Bernie was that uh, not only is Bernie not aware of what the union benefits are and what the union health care plans look like, he doesn't care. Um, he has no recognition of the potential for unforeseen consequences. He is enamored with his own intellect. He is enamored with his plan of Medicare for all. He describes it in broad, overly simplistic strokes of the brush. It's comprehensive. It covers all health care needs, right? He used those two descriptors. Comprehensive covers all health care needs as if it's very simple to take 330 million Americans and just lump them under one plan and expect by saying something really simple-minded like, yeah, it covers everything. Well, what is everything? Well, I don't know, but whatever it is, we're going to cover it uh, with no thought about what it's going to cost, who's going to pay for it, how you finance it, and you know, raising taxes on the 1% is not going to do it, right? If you do the math, you could confiscate all of the wealth and assets of the 1% and still not be able to pay for Medicare for all. So it's just a, it, it, the arrogance of that bothers me. And um, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here in a, little, a little bit and introduce something very new. The, this whole idea of, of Bernie Sanders and Medicare for all, you know, I mean, Bernie even kind of looks like a mad scientist sometimes. You know, his hair's all disheveled. You know, he, he wears very plain clothes that don't fit very well. And those aren't – that doesn't make him a bad politician. He could be fully capable of being president with respect to the fit of his clothes. It doesn't matter. Uh, except it does create kind of an image, and and I got to thinking you have you have a political mad scientist with a monster, Medicare for all, and it reminds me of the Frankenstein story. Now I know that Halloween is still a couple of months away, and that may sound crazy, but bear with me. I've run this idea past about a half a dozen people that I respect, and they all say it's a great idea. So before you write me off as crazy as Frankenstein, hear me out here and let me walk you through this. Now I'm not talking about Young Frankenstein the movie, although that's one of my favorite movies of all time. Or any of the, you know, Hollywood renditions of Frankenstein with the flat top monster and the bolts in his neck and his hands out going, uh, that kind of thing. I'm talking about the original novel written by one Mary Shelley, um, you know, a couple of hundred years ago. And, you know, you have to go back and I went back and, and read as much of the book, reread as much of the book as I could get my hands on to be sure I sort of had my literary facts right here before I sort of went off on this tangent. But hear me out. The story begins with a young teenage aged Frankenstein who goes off to university um, having studied some science but mostly alchemists, 
right? Alchemy, right? This alternate science that comes from many, many moons ago before a scientific enlightenment. That's who thought they could turn lead into gold and all this kind of stuff. And he reads all of this in his high school years, basically, goes off to university, challenges his professors with his knowledge, and by and large, not totally, but by and large is unimpressed with some of his faculty, not all, and fancies himself to be smarter than they are, or at least more gifted than they are. And so, uh, you know, he really redoubles his interest in alchemy over traditional science, which was now gaining momentum by the time of, 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 of Frankenstein's character, um, and becomes obsessed with the reanimation of dead tissue, right? Creating the monster, sewing all the parts together and striking it with lightning and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and he becomes very enamored with himself. He becomes very arrogant, um, out of proportion to even his talent, and he was talented, a very talented character, um, but really, you know, regards himself as capable of not only reanimating dead tissue, but re- raising ghosts from the dead and devils from the dead and all this kind of stuff. Fancies that any creature he creates will sort of worship him as a god, as their creator. The way God created man, he's going to create uh, other living things and become sort of a god in his own right. So tremendous levels of arrogance and an obsession with his project. So does this sound familiar? Does this parallel what Bernie Sanders is doing with Medicare for all? Uh, you know, an, an arrogance that says, I don't really care what the rest of the system looks like. I don't really care about history. I don't really care about who this is going to help, who this is going to hurt, or any of the unforeseen consequences. Right? We are just going to wipe the slate clean on healthcare in America and replace it with a fully government-run program. And it's going to work great because I'm Bernie Sanders and I say it's going to work great. It's going to work great because we're just not going to think it through. We're just going to step off the cliff and do it. And like the teenage Dr. Frankenstein, he has no uh, no recognition of unintended consequences or that anything can go wrong. Well, then what happens? Well, it's interesting to actually read these chapters from the original Mary Shelley novel um, because the moment the creature is created, and I mean before the creature has a chance, the, the, the monster, that's really called the monster, has a chance to do anything, hurt anyone, do anything, um, Frankenstein is horrified by his monster. The minute he opens an eye, opens his eyes, he takes a deep breath, and he moves his limbs, twitches something on the table there. And the minute that happens, he's disgusted, he's horrified, he's in that, you know, has that, you know, what have I done kind of moment. Now, there's something odd there because the creature, the, the, the monster hadn't done anything yet. I mean, that's like being horrified by your child the minute it's born just because, you know, it takes a breath and moves a limb. You know, it doesn't make any sense unless there's something deeper going on here. And sure enough, uh, you know, bad things happen once this monster is created, right? This The monster goes out and murders Victor Frankenstein's brother, leads to the death of two other people, one other victim that Frankenstein murders and another person who's mistakenly convicted for one of the uh, uh, Frankenstein murders. 
and uh, and and so and so it goes. Uh, the mon- the monster eventually confronts Victor Frankenstein, um, and oddly enough, speaks very eloquently. Apparently, this monster is very educated. He knows French. He's sort of picked up all this in his his uh, travels. Um, but then he makes um, Victor Frankenstein an ultimatum and says, "Make me a mate, or I will destroy you." And Frankenstein initially agrees, but then on the second time around, finally it occurs to this allegedly brilliant person that he better think about unforeseen consequences if he's going to build another one. And says, you know, this one might be even more violent than the first, or the two of them might breed a whole race of monsters because you've created a male, you've created a female, right? I mean, the creation story from the Bible, this is the book of Genesis all over again, except it's the scary way instead of the good way, right? He creates the first monster, which is Adam. Adam asks for a mate, right? You know, the monster asks for a mate. But then um, Frankenstein has second thoughts, and, and just about the time he's got all the parts put together, um, the original Frankenstein monster comes in. Victor decides this isn't such a good idea and destroys the the, the bride of Frankenstein. Right, that's where this all those movies came from, um, and destroys the second monster right in front of the first. And the monster swears to get revenge on Frankenstein. Says, "I'll be with you on your wedding night." Sure enough, you know, months later, he's married. He, the fr- monster's there. He kills his wife, and in the end, the monster never actually dies without dragging out the plot too far. Um, and so the, the, the parallels are there. They're unmistakable. So what we're faced with now is the mad scientist Bernie Sanders has his monster on the table. All the parts are sewn together. If he's elected president, lightning strikes the monster and he comes to life. And I think the outcome will be just as the novel Frankenstein predicts, that uh, that we think it's great, or some people think it's great, up until the moment it's created, and then the longer time passes after that moment of creation, the worse things get. And I think that's where we're going. If you look at uh, you know the the prison issue and sort of bring those together, you know here's the fundamental problem with Medicare for all. The folks who think the VA is great, and the folks that think Medicare for all is great fail to recognize a basic point of human nature. We humans, wonderful as we are, we need accountability. We need incentives in order to make things work. The mistake of Medicare for all is the same mistake as the VA, the National Health Service, and the Canadian system, which is the belief that all you need to do is bring patients together, doctors and nurses together, put them in a building with a pile of resources, and the result just happens. And that's not it. That's like the difference between a living creature and a pile of chemicals that represent the same composition of as, as a human. It doesn't work. You know, life is not just a a pile of chemicals that you mix together in a pot and heat it up. There's something more. That's the difference between free market medicine and Medicare for all. Medicare for all is a monster. You're listening to the Doctors Lounge on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. 
Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Dr. Mike Karuchak, your host this week. It's good to be with you. Thank you very much for continuing to uh, to hang out with us this hour. Um, we were reading some articles. Uh, this is sort of like a journal club here, I suppose. And we were, we were reviewing this article that talked about the six things that are wrong with hospital medicine. They're really six steps that take the hospitalist specialty from potential greatness down to merely a vehicle for financial survival. And that's the opinion of the, the author of the article who is himself a hospitalist. So the six steps, we started to talk about them in the prior segment. We'll review them again briefly. Step one, um, you hire a bunch of young, hungry docs that have student loans to pay off and are ready to work really, really super hard. And then you put them on a relatively fixed salary, and then you give them as many patients to take care of as they can humanly handle. That's step one. Step two, the, the doctors themselves respond by offloading as much of the work as possible to, uh, to specialists. So, you know, if there's a pneumonia, you get a pulmonologist or an infectious disease. If there's renal failure, you get the nephrologist, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so that's, uh, you know, if there's sinusitis, they call me, the ENT. Uh, so that's step two is to, is to, you know, add on to the, the, uh, specialist consultants. Step three is to start, uh, massaging your documentation to make papers, papers, patients look as uh, as sick as possible on paper, which leads to where we are now, which is step four, uh, which is the fourth pillar, which is now uh, where uh, you start gaming with things like observation status versus inpatient status. And, uh, you know, if you can use improved documentation to uh, make patients, again, look as sick as possible on paper so that you're Diagnoses change, and so your your um, your case mix index changes, and so that is step four. Step five is now where utilization review nurses enter the picture, and uh, and start looking to get fixed DRG patients out of the hospital as soon as possible. Uh, again, because you know the fixed DRG, as I understand it, and my understanding is very rudimentary, means you get a fixed payment, which means once you get the money, you want to discharge the patient as soon as possible to reduce the overhead. Uh, and then finally, the last step comes completely from without, which is the quality measures that CMS imposes on everyone. And now you've got to do everything that you can to sort of live within these quality measures, even if it, you know, creates frank distortions in the documentation in terms of how well or how sick a patient really is. So six steps. And again, why do these steps exist? They exist because hospitals live off of third-party payer payments. And, you know, and so now... You know, hospitalists above all, I mean, you know, it, this article made me feel for these folks. It's not their fault. It's not the hospital's fault. It is the system within which we all must exist. And, you know, we all have to do things similar to this in one way or another. It was just a very interesting article published in Kevin MD. Um, you know, what was this, uh, last September actually just ran across it. Um, that is, uh, that is so interesting about that. So there's Journal Club article number one. And again, the theme of all of this, these articles I found is how third-party payer distorts every single part of medicine. You know, we talk about, you know, certain things, you know, primary care and information technology and, you know, we talk about all these things. Um, you know, there's a lot of other nooks and crannies in the system that, that we don't have time to give a lot of attention to, hospitalists being one of them. And so we'll talk about a few of these. So here's an article on the opioid epidemic. Um, and what you might not know about the opi- opioid ec- epidemic is that uh, in 2016, uh, the CDC, in response to the opioid epidemic, 
came out with some very uh, draconian guidelines, at least according to this author, about you know when you can prescribe opioids, how long you can prescribe opioids, who can prescribe them. I hate that word opioids; they're narcotics for crying out loud. Uh, uh, but uh, you know what were the rules for for um, prescribing narcotics? And uh, you know we don't. I, I'm not exposed to this very much. I give very very short courses of narcotics after surgery, um, and I do give less now than I used to. I used to give 30 hydrocodone Tylenol pills. Now I give 20, and if it's a smaller surgery, even 15 or even as little as 12. Um, and I think that's worked out pretty well. I think there's probably a lot fewer of my patients with you know half-consumed uh, bottles of uh, you know, Tylenol and hydrocodone sitting in their cabin, which is a good thing. Uh, but I didn't do that in response to any forced guideline. I just did it because I thought it was the right thing to do. But apparently docs and other specialties who you know prescribe narcotics under different conditions uh, you know were really sort of pushed into doing that and in um, uh, you know in, in in March of uh, of uh, this year the, the the CDC received a letter from 300 medical experts uh, including former drug czars from the prior administration saying that the 2016 guidelines had become a tool for insurers to deny opioid coverage right here comes the third party distortion as if these guidelines weren't enough now you've got insurers denying opioid coverage and for doctors to undertreat or even drop patients that they have on narcotics and as a result you know there were a lot of patients really hurting and they were going into narcotic withdrawal so now what happens well now doctors get a warning right again it's always the doctor's fault um, that you can't taper opioids opioids see look at me narcotics too soon and so now you got another set of guidelines that countermand the original set of guidelines. And you know, in reading the article, you know, some people seem to like this. I, you know, it, to me, it's confusing. It's kind of like, okay, you know, what are what are my legal responsibilities? Uh, you know, as a narcotic prescriber, and you know, once again. Third-party interference from government and insurers, you know, it, it, at the very least what it does is it deprives the physician of autonomy. It deprives the physician of the ability to use clinical judgment to know when opioids – opioids, listen to me – narcotics are appropriate and when narcotics aren't appropriate, how much, how often, when, for how long. You know, all that is now, uh, you know, taken away from us and our ability to make those judgments is bad. And remember, it was regulations that started this whole thing in the first place, right? Doctors just didn't start deciding arbitrarily years ago to start over-prescribing narcotics. This all came down because of, uh, you know, JCAH that accredits hospitals, the pain scale, and, you know, the, the first lecture that we got, you know, years ago that we weren't giving enough uh, medications to patients for pain. So, you know, this is what happens with third-party interference. First, they pushed us to give too much narcotic. Then they threatened us legally to reduce the amount of narcotics. And now the pendulum's back again saying, oh, no, don't taper too soon or you're going to hurt somebody. This is what happens with these rapidly flipping guidelines back and forth, back and forth. Uh, and, and, you know, in the end, we're, we're deprived of our ability to make judgments. If they would just have left us alone... None of this would have happened. Not that uh, narcotic addiction is not a significant problem. It is. It always has been. Uh, now the problem is far worse because of third-party interference with the practice of medicine. That's that. Now let's look at another sort of section of the healthcare system that we haven't really talked about very much at all, which has to do with medical research. Medical research that is largely carried out at our hallowed, revered academic institutions. 
And this article actually starts off picking on my medical school, Alma, Alma Mater, Duke University. So it's, you know, with some sadness that I report this, except to say that it's happening in other places besides Duke. And the, and the article just appropriately says that, you know, Duke is just the latest uh, in, a, in a long string of this. But this is the Duke settling a, a doctor data lawsuit for $112.5 million, so a really, really high price tag. Um, but that there was, uh, you know, a, a one particular physician researcher that was fudging data and, uh, you know, fudging data a lot. Uh, it, it seems they had a whistleblower um, and, uh, and they're going to receive a significant amount of the $112 uh, million. Um, but, you know, the, the data here are a little scary uh, that, uh, you know, the study was on the effects um, of pollutants air pollution on the lungs in a, in a mouse model and that, um, you know, Duke had won some 50 NIH grants from, well, not just the NIH, Environmental Protection Agency, other government agencies, and apparently the data that were in these things were um, uh, fraudulent data. And, you know, it, and Duke's not the only one that's got this, uh, you know, Fraudulent data problem. The uh, the the article you know has, says there's other ones. In 2017, Brigham and Women's had to pay the government 10 million dollars um, because three stem cell scientists um, manipulated and falsified information. Columbia University in New York City had one for 9.5 million. So uh, you know it's not just one institution; it's several institutions. And you know this article mentions three, counting Duke. Um, but again, it's a third-party payer problem. It's not exactly the same because it's not insurance, but you have a situation where researchers are are dependent on a, a benefactor for the money, and they end up sort of working in one project and one project only. <clears throat> and if the well runs dry on the validity of that project, then they're in a terrible ethical bind. Because if they just come out and say, you know what, I've been working on this project five years, ten years, and you know what, it's just not panning out. You know, there's there's nothing here to find. It's a dead end. Uh, you know, their career's over. Because if they lose their NIH grant, they lose their job, as I understand it. And so, you know, what's a what's a PhD researcher to do? Uh, you know, it, you have to start over again in somebody else's lab with no grant and you know minimal salary. I mean, it's you know we've set up a system here, you know, where you know I'm not saying the players aren't at fault, but I'm I, I'm saying I, I recognize their ethical dilemma of that you know you do one project, you rely on grants, you have no other income stream, and <clears throat> if that runs dry, <clears throat> excuse me. Then you know you're you're in a it's it's a terrible a terrible ethical dilemma. These folks are are their entire careers based on one scientific hypothesis, one project, and uh, you know again you know we've got a problem where government involvement has distorted things so badly that there's a problem. Okay, so we've got uh, a couple of minutes left. Let's talk about uh, wellness programs. All right, here's another sort of nook and cranny that we've never really gone into, but uh, wellness programs. We're talking about workplace wellness programs, right, where your employer offers you financial incentives to exercise more, to eat better, to do all these things. And on the surface, it sounds like a good idea. And In fact, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, had very, very generous incentives. You could apparently put uh, you know, incentives in place 
worth up to 30% of the cost of your health insurance, uh, you know, which ended up being, you know, hundreds or even thousands of dollars of, of benefits, um, from, uh, you know, doing, you know, participating in one of these wellness programs. So, um, this is published in Kaiser Health News, uh, April 16th of last month, and they, Finally looked at, uh, they, they had a large study cohort. They used BJ's Wholesale Club, and they, I guess they've got 160 stores. So they put 20 store outlets on a wellness program, and 140 stores they left as they were without a wellness program. And after 18 months, it turned out, yeah, the, the workers participating in the wellness programs did self-report healthier behavior, but those efforts did not result in any difference in health measures. You know, blood sugar was no better. Um, you know, uh, the money spent on health care didn't change. Job performance didn't change. Longevity in the position didn't change. And so, you know, we've got another situation where the data show that something that seems like a good idea does not appear to be based on this. Now, there's some shortcomings in the study, and we're running out of time, so um, we're done. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge on our road trip from Atlanta to Orlando to DPC 3.0. With me in the mobile studio is Grace Marie Turner, who needs no introduction. Uh, We're going to spend all the time letting her give us her wisdom uh, about what's going on in Washington. And I'm not even going to ask pointed questions, Grace Marie. I'm just going (laughs) to let you go, and I'm going to be quiet. You're so good. You guys know so much more about what's going on in the healthcare system than those of us in Washington do. But unfortunately, so many decisions made in Washington affect your practices. So I follow those closely with the with our in our work with the Galen Institute, which is a nonprofit think tank founded on the idea of protecting the doctor-patient relationship and putting that back at the center of our health sector. And it's never an easy job, of course. And this, of course, spent the last, it's now eight years dealing with Obamacare and the assault on our, on our small group and individual health insurance markets. But we're beginning to see some, some cracks and some opportunities for individuals to be able to get the health insurance of their choice, to begin to have more options and opportunities for affordable coverage. Of course, one of the main things that Congress did earlier this year was get rid of the penalty for not having government-approved health insurance. The individual mandate was gone as part of the tax bill, and that really has given a lot of energy to companies in the health sector to think about ways that they can provide more options and more opportunities for people to have different kinds of, of health insurance coverage. At the same time, the Trump administration is using its administrative and regulatory authority to try to, again, open up more options. And I'll be talking about, about those a, a little bit this evening as we have a conversation over the impact of Washington on health reform. 
three things that the administration has done just in the last year I think really are important. First, it has allowed people to have something called short-term limited-duration plans. These are things we refer to as bridge coverage, people who've lost a job, they're starting a company, they retire early, they're not yet eligible for Medicare, who need health insurance, and they need a a short-term plan. The administration has allowed those to last for a year. The Obama administration cut them back to only three months. And the Trump administration also is allowing them to be renewed for three years, which really means that you can have um, an individual policy of your choice that does not have to comply with all of the expensive Obamacare rules and regulations. Most of the policies are half, even 70% lower than the previous policies in the individual market. They also are letting 10 million businesses have opportunities to use health reimbursement arrangements as a way of compensating their employees for health insurance. Basically, it's a defined contribution that allows people the option of getting the money that their employer would have put on the table for their health insurance coverage and using that to buy the private plan of their choice. Maybe they would like to be able to combine their funds with their spouse's funds in order to be able to buy an individual policy. Maybe by having the the defined contribution from one employer, they can use that money to buy a family policy with the other employer because usually the premiums are higher for that. And then finally, they're allowing association health plans to be revived. These are plans that allow people to aggregate in different ways than under employers through professional associations, trade associations, um, community groups that allow them to to basically get the economies of scale that large employers get, but to do it and purchase those as individuals. People are having a good time with this part. <laughs> they are. They are. Even behind the plexiglass of the uh, acoustic tiles, we're still getting it. <laughs> But just to finish with the Association Health Plans, I just yes. saw today that Land O'Lakes, the, the creamery, is starting an Association Health Plan so that dairy farmers can can combine to uh, purchase health insurance that um, that works for them that does not have to be Obamacare compliant. So I think those are all important important options and important options for DPC practice because people are going to demand the kind of coverage that works for them rather than the kind of coverage that Washington has been telling them for the last eight years they have to have. So, dare I ask, do you want to try reading the tea leaves or at least looking at the different potential forks in the road after uh, the November midterms? Well, it really depends upon what happens in the elections. When are we going to be airing here, this show? Oh, I, I don't know. This okay. may be after, after probably okay. after, yes. So we're going to have to go one way or the other. So right. if, if Republicans control the, don't lose control of the House. So if you still have Republicans in control of both both houses of Congress, I, I really believe they're going to come back to health reform because they do not want to be pummeled the way they have during the general during this general election over pre-existing conditions. So they know they've got to go back to the drawing board and try again, hopefully with stronger numbers, to be able to pass something. If Republicans don't hold the House, it pretty looks it looks pretty pretty certain they'll hold the Senate. If they don't hold the House, I think we actually may see some legislation during the lame duck, which is only a few weeks in late November and early December, and then. If they, if they don't do that, I think we're really teed up 
for the big debate in the next presidential campaign over whether we have Medicare for all or whether or not we have a system that does, in fact, restore power and control to individuals through free market options and giving them really devolving power through the states. <laughs> they're having a, doesn't everybody wish they were here? I know. I'm telling <laughs> so you what. Funny. I'm wondering what they're doing. What are they doing? There's a There's huge some, crowd some over there. Some kind of a game going on. I don't know. Yeah, I see it. We're yeah. I don't know what that is. Are there some for some sort of a photo? So photo something over going. there. Yeah, Who's exactly. Who's your celebrity here? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> well, I think they found a celebrity. That's Apparently, funny. but this is this shows you. I mean, this is, we should use this because this is the spirit here at this conference. Of That's people what excited says. and enthusiastic and feeling that there's 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 hope ahead because there's a new path for doctors to actually practice medicine. And the spirit here shows that. It's really extraordinary. And and, and Lee Gross earlier this evening behind that microphone said something very cogent, which is that you know when you go to most doctor meetings, especially if they include some sort of legislative talk, it sounds like a funeral yeah. because everybody is depressed over the deteriorating conditions in medicine, but not here. Not here. And, sure. and, and Dr. Gross just actually is walking by us right yes. now with a big smile on his face. Indeed. He's happy to see the con- the turnout here, the participation, and the enthusiasm. And the, He just waved at us. The yes, enthusiasm indeed. here. I know. No question about it. So so one last question for you, and, and this is this is an unrehearsed question just, just to be fair, is if if the Republicans get a chance, right, with both houses in control, if that happens, and they take another stab at Obamacare, um, do you think they can do a good job? They can. In fact, our policy community has worked tirelessly for the last year to come up with really the next generation of free market health reform. It's called the Health Care Choices Plan. And you can read all about it at our dedicated website that's called healthcarereform2018.org. Two, three words, healthcarereform2018, all together, .org. And people can, can read about the healthcare choices plan. It's going to devolve power through the states, ultimately to individuals, using the Obamacare money as a platform to really create a, a much more vibrant, affordable health sector in um, in this, particularly the individual and small group markets. We've had some modeling done on the plan. It reduced, reduces, reduces premiums by a third. It doesn't have the decimation that we saw with the other Republican plans and 22 million people losing coverage. Coverage stays level, really goes up. Reduces the deficit. We think that this is the plan that Congress will come back to, and I'm going to be talking about that tonight, too. Outstanding. Well, Grace Marie Turner, thank you for visiting the Doctor's Lounge. It is such a pleasure. Thank you so All much, right. Doc. All right, so we got you, Grace Marie, there, uh, the interview from last November. So uh, uh, I know that, uh, you know, with the November election, the Democrats have the House, so some of that conversation is, at least for the moment, not directly applicable. However, um, you did hear uh, a few weeks ago that, that uh, President Trump had uh, re-declared uh, his intentions, um, reaffirmed his intentions, 
uh, to repeal and replace uh, Obamacare. Hard to tell where that's going to go. Uh, you know, certainly in uh, in a Democrat-controlled House, not much. But we're close enough to 2020 that if you dare to dream big, uh, that that maybe uh, after the 2020 elections, uh, you know, we get another shot at uh, you know having both houses and maybe something good happens. Who knows? Obviously, that's a long way off and and a huge amount of speculation. So. To fill up, we have what two minutes and forty seconds left. We got I got a couple of more articles to fill the space and do our our thirteen minute segment. One of which um, is an interesting uh, sort of thing, which I think is from Medscape. I want to say no, no Becker's ASC review. Okay, so this is uh, actually a report of oh Medscape's. Um, physician compensation report for 2019 uh, and sort of a, a summary of, of some of the statistics um, from that uh, report. So I thought this was very interesting that physicians were asked, which um, which reimbursement model do you participate in? And you could pick more than one because obviously, uh, you know, some folks do more than one. And so the options were insurance, fee-for-service, ACO, direct primary care, cash only, and concierge. Uh, and so the, the first number was insurance. So how many physicians and what percent of physicians you think are still under insurance? Well, the number is 81%. And you say, well, that sounds about right. You know, most physicians are still in, a, in an insurance model getting paid by third parties. The interesting thing I thought about that was to do the math and realize 19% didn't check that box. So that means there are 19% of docs surveyed for this. I and mean, this was some, you know, almost 20,000 physicians interviewed for this. Or questionnaire surveyed for this, uh, it said that, uh, that they didn't, uh, you know, 19% of, uh, of, of uh, that number uh, are, are not uh, taking uh, payments from insurance. So where are those folks? Well, uh, 11 out of that 19% is in direct primary care. And so that's a great number because the last time I saw a statistic, that number was 5%. Now it's over double that. Uh, and I wonder if some of the folks, you know, that th- th- maybe that number is even higher than 11 because the 19% that don't take insurance have to come from somewhere. Uh, there is cash only practice, which is 6%. Um, you know, that brings the number up to 17 um and uh, and then you know the concierge practice is 2% but that the concierge by definition takes insurance so they're a part of the 81% uh, but i thought it was very interesting that uh, direct primary care line item is 11% which is more than double the last number i saw but if you look at insurance at 81% that leaves 19% that aren't taking insurance anymore so that's a big number uh you know maybe i'm misinterpreting that somehow but i found that to be a a very very interesting um, statistic. Uh, so uh, that pretty much wraps up the hour. So we had a little of everything here. Uh, hopefully you, you enjoyed what you heard. We heard from uh, Dr. Lee Gross in the beginning telling us about Florida legislation. I talked a little bit about the Georgia legislation and we went on from there. Um, that's it for the hour. Thanks for listening. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.